is episode 77, and today I will be talking about early intervention services with children who have autism. As an occupational therapist who works with children, whether I'm talking to someone I just met or members of my own family that know me pretty well, I still often find myself trying to help them understand what in the world an occupational therapist could possibly do with kids. We know what we do, but it can be difficult for people who aren't in it to understand, especially since they usually never get the chance to see it in person. I know there are many of you listening that are OTs, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes I wonder if PTs and speech-language pathologists might experience the same thing at times, too. It's always interesting trying to figure out how to explain the situation to most people. I think we need to remember that when we are working in early intervention, just because a family agrees to have us come to their house for therapy, it doesn't mean that they understand what we do either. I've had a few families over the years ask me what an OT would do for their child because they really just have no idea what we do. But I'm guessing that there are many families that just trust us and let us come in even if they have no clue what they're getting into. Let's keep this in mind when we are meeting families for the first times, and the exact things we will do with them will be different for each child because we cater therapy to their individual needs, of course, but we can explain what the purpose of having occupational therapy is with their child. The main way that I like to explain it is letting people know that I work with children and their families on practicing motor skills, I help with eating issues, and teach families about sensory processing, and anything else that might be affecting their ability to function in daily life, which for kids we mostly focus on play skills and social skills and learning how to be independent with dressing and eating and stuff like that. One of the tricky things working in early intervention is that we see kids at a very young age. Early intervention programs tend to work with kids from birth to three years. We don't always get to start seeing newborns right away, but sometimes we do. It just depends on the situation. In my area, we have an excellent referral source in our local children's hospital. If a newborn or infant is admitted to their hospital after they're born, and especially if they're receiving OT or PT or speech in the hospital, or if the baby is giving a medical diagnosis that could affect their development, the hospital will refer the program, the family, to our early intervention program right away. I can't say that it happens every time, but I do know that it happens a lot. Getting back to the tricky part, though, for children who have autism, they don't know it at this very young age yet. It is pretty common to get a referral for a two-year-old child who isn't talking yet, and the parent is seeking out a speech therapy evaluation to help them learn how to talk. As part of the referral and intake process to our program specifically, and I know that each state has their own process, in Missouri we have a person who goes out to meet with the family after we get a referral. This person is called an intake coordinator in our program. They meet with the family at their home and get all of their basic contact information and start gathering information about the family's concerns regarding their child's development. They find out what their birth history and any medical history that might be relevant to the situation. Based on this information gathering process, the intake coordinators are the ones who determine 
which type of therapist would be the best fit to do the initial evaluation for this child. In situations where the two-year-old isn't talking yet, this throws up a red flag for our program. While there are cases where a two-year-old could be just not talking yet and not have autism, it is one thing that we definitely consider when continuing to ask the family questions about their child and the concerns that they have. The reason for this is, and I will get into this in more detail later on, is that a speech therapist may or may not be the appropriate person to complete the evaluation for this child. If the intake coordinator suspects that the child could potentially be showing signs of undiagnosed autism, Of course, the intake coordinators are not doctors, and they can't and won't try to diagnose this. They just look for the potential red flags and go from there. This can be difficult for parents to understand, but in the cases where a child has autism at the age of two, we might have a lot of other skills to work on before we can actually tackle the speech and language part of development directly. That is not always the case, of course, but this is something that we look at. So if the intake coordinator has suspicions, they might decide that a special instructor or an occupational therapist might be a better choice for the evaluation. The special instructors in our program focus on overall development, play skills, and social skills, among other things. And if the family reports that the child is a picky eater and some other possible signs of sensory processing difficulties, the OT might be a better choice for the evaluation because we can include a sensory evaluation as part of the process. In our early in in our early intervention program, the person who does the initial evaluation isn't necessarily going to be the person who continues providing ongoing therapy services to that family if the child qualifies. However, I would say that in the majority of cases, the person who does the initial evaluation does end up being the person who continues on with the family. We like to do this so the family can start to have some continuity right away. They start to open up during the evaluations and a lot of times actually start to build a rapport even during the first meeting. It makes more sense to have the most appropriate therapy discipline from the beginning if possible. There are times that the therapist who does the initial evaluation might determine that a different discipline would be a better fit for that child and family. In that case, the person who continues with ongoing therapy would be different. This is the process with all of our referrals, regardless of whether or not the child is showing signs of autism. But it can be trickier when they are showing potential signs of autism because it is difficult to predict which therapy will be the most appropriate for each child based on one short first meeting. It is also the case where we may start services right away with multiple different therapy disciplines. The person who does the evaluation will most likely end up being what we call the primary provider for that child, but we may also add other therapists as consultants for the child and family. For example, let's say the family is concerned with their child not talking yet, and they're two years old, let's say 24 months old but they have also noticed that the child will only eat three foods consistently, and they become very upset if one or all of those three foods are not on their tray at meals. They also have some additional sensory concerns, like they won't leave their clothes on even in the middle of winter, 
They will only wear a diaper around the house, if they're lucky, and getting them dressed to leave the house is hardly worth the battle sometimes. In this scenario, I would say that having an OT complete the initial assessment using our standardized protocol and also completing a sensory profile or some other type of sensory assessment with the family is the ideal option. Then once the initial evaluation is over and we write out their goals and make a plan for ongoing therapy, I'm sure we would want to add speech-language pathologists and special instructors in special instruction as consultants. The reasoning behind this is that if the child is having issues with daily life activities such as eating and dressing, transitions and things like that, and we know that they're having difficulties with sensory processing, which is affecting these areas, then the OT is going to be the best resource for getting started with this. Having an understanding of what the child's sensory processing abilities are will help all therapists and the family figure out more effective strategies for helping the child. We can figure out what sensory issues are affecting the child's ability to keep their clothes on, figure out why they want them off rather than on, and find strategies to help them feel okay while their clothes are on. This can lead to going to the park or going to another friend's house for a play date and actually having the potential for social interactions and working on their social skills and language development. When sensory processing issues are present, it can and does affect a person's ability to function in daily life and daily routines. So if we don't address those issues and figure out how to help the person feel better or feel okay in their own skin, we will have a very difficult time helping them make progress with their daily life skills. So in early intervention, as I mentioned before, It involves infants from birth to three-year-old toddlers who are considered to be at risk for developmental delays. It was designed to provide therapy and other related services in the child's natural environment, which ideally would be in their home. This can also include other natural environments or places where the child would usually spend time. Some examples of this are things like the local park or playground, the grocery store, family members' houses, a sibling's sporting event, like a baseball game, movie theaters, and any other place like these where the child and family tend to visit. This can also include a daycare, especially if the child attends there regularly. This is not preferred, though, unless there are no other options for scheduling with the family at a reasonable time for both sides. Although therapists can and do work with daycare staff on strategies and ideas to help the child, it is preferable to be able to work with the family on these things directly, since they are the ones that will be with the child in the long run. Getting back to the topic for today, because I think I've gone off on a tangent for long enough, early intervention should be presented to families in such a way that lets them know we, the therapists and providers, are part of their team. We are here to work with the child and the family as a collaboration, meaning we are not coming in and doing therapy with your child who has autism or any other child for that matter. We are here to educate the family and caregivers of the child so that they will have the tools and knowledge to understand and help their own child. For a family who has a child with autism or possible signs of autism without a diagnosis, 
it is imperative that they are part of the team, not as bystanders, but as active participants. Once their child turns three and transitions out of the early intervention program, the family may never have this one-on-one home therapy services again, unless they have really good medical insurance or a lot of money. So we need to help them make the most out of this time together. So hopefully they will have a good understanding of what types of strategies and activities they can do with their child to help them continue to make progress with development, eating, social skills, language, and independence. As OTs, we cannot come in once a week for 60 minutes, sit down with the child, work with them on things like completing puzzles and making eye contact or eating issues, then say goodbye and come back next week for the same thing. This is not making the best use of your expertise and knowledge, and it is not helping this child and family in ways that are in their best interest. Does this teach the family anything? Other than now they believe that only therapists can help their child. What are they supposed to do when you leave, and what is their main concern for that week that they didn't even get to talk to you about. I know that this type of services is very common, and there are probably a lot of therapists listening right now that are thinking, yeah, this sounds familiar. This is how we do things in our state. And I understand this too, because not all states use a teaming or coaching model. And even some states that do use the teaming or coaching models, not all therapists 100% subscribe to the teaming approach. I hope that if you are a therapist who fits in one of these scenarios that you will listen and think about this seriously. Because even if your state doesn't use a teaming model approach, you can still do your best to change the way that you provide services with families. I have no doubt why so many families of kids with autism can't tell you what their occupational therapist does with their child. They can't describe what they're working on. When working with families of kids with autism in early intervention, specifically at their homes, our number one focus needs to be on what the family's concerns are in that moment and in general. There may be some overall concerns with transitions or eating or dressing and other things, but 30 minutes before you arrive to their house, their child may have had a complete sensory meltdown that could still be going on as you're walking in the door. So the concern in that moment is likely going to be focused on what to do when their child has a meltdown, what to do right now because it's still going on. The conversation will turn into a dialogue between the parent and therapist discussing what happened before the meltdown in this case and what were the events leading up to it and what happened during and after the meltdown. If it is still going on when you walk in the door, that is the perfect time to coach the parent through strategies to try right now. We can help them in this time of need figure out what the parent's best response might be in this moment. During the session after the meltdown events are over, is a good time to figure out what happened to cause this meltdown and see if this is what happens every time there is a meltdown or if you can narrow down the common reasons why they might be happening. Then begin to problem solve some strategies for in the case of meltdowns, trying to prevent them from happening if possible, and if they can't be prevented, what actions the parent should try and minimize to minimize the intensity and the length of the meltdowns. 
Now, this isn't a show about Meltdown specifically, so I'm not going to get into these in any more detail than I already have. But if anyone is interested in hearing more about this, let me know and I can put together a show that will focus more on that. Maybe you show up one day and there are no crises going on at the time, but the parent was really wanting some suggestions about how to get their child to fall asleep faster at night. Because it seems like no matter what they do, the child will not fall asleep for at least two hours once they put them to bed. Or maybe they want to know how to get them to hold a spoon to try and feed themselves and use the spoon instead of their fingers all the time. Or they've noticed that their child seems to be scared of swings at the playground, and they want to know if we have any ideas on this. These are all very common types of questions and concerns that parents have. I rarely get questions from parents of kids with autism on how to get them to do puzzles or shape sorters. I'm not saying these aren't good things to work on with kids, because developmentally they are excellent things to work on. However, this will hopefully drive home the point to you that this is more of a therapist-derived activity and concern or goal than a parent one most of the time. Of course, parents like to see their kids playing with these toys as well, but they are also dealing with very real and often very difficult situations on a day-to-day or even hour-to-hour basis. These are the things that we need to be there for. If possible, we can go to the playground with the parents and the child to see how to help them on the swings. It may be that we actually need to do other things before getting on the swing itself in order to get them prepared for it. These are the things that we understand and can help parents by educating them to to um, explain the sensory piece of things and the developmental piece or whatever aspect is impacting their abilities to participate in these activities. This can involve some direct hands-on activities between the therapist and the child along with the parent in order to figure out the best way to help in certain situations. Maybe the child, the parent's concern is that their child isn't making eye contact with them. We often need to use repetition to work on this with kids who have autism. One strategy is having the parent hold a desired item like the child's cup, up by their own face. While at the child's eye level and facing the child, the parent might say cup. And if the child looks in the direction of the parent at all, the parent gives them the cup. The idea is that gradually the child will learn to look closer and closer towards the parent's eyes, which might actually mean the middle of their nose or their mouth before they even get close to their eyes. It would be appropriate for the therapist to model this for the parent a few times just to show them what to do and then pass it back to the parent to do with their own child. This is just one basic strategy for working on on eye contact and I find that therapists want to be the ones to do this with the kids. We often get repetition by doing this with puzzles or shape sorters, especially if the child is motivated by these and likes these. But I don't see how it helps the parents if the child is learning to make eye contact with the therapist who is there maybe one time a week for an hour. Sometimes when we have conversations with parents and they have a concern with one thing, we end up figuring out 
other times that the child might be having the same issues, but the the parent hadn't put it together yet. For example, if a parent has a concern about taking the child with autism to their older sibling's school-based sporting event, the child might have a difficult time sitting still for very long and maybe difficulty with staying quiet. They might become upset after 30 minutes of being at the events every time. Since I know the child's sensory processing difficulties already, I can help problem-solve the situation with the parent by asking questions based around the sensory stuff. In one case, a child might have difficulty with auditory processing, and we figure out that the sporting events are very loud, and they can only tolerate about 30 minutes before they become upset and anxious or overstimulated by the sounds of the place. Therefore, they start to get antsy and want to get up and run around or start acting out by yelling and becoming upset easily. While we discuss some possible strategies for them to try, we might also figure out that this is a similar situation to what is going on every evening at their own home. This is another time of day that the parent has concerns about, but they might not have put it together on their own that the same type of thing is going on at that time, just on a different level. For example, this might be the time of day when the older siblings come home from school and the other parent might come home from work, and now everyone is home. Whereas before, earlier, the house was quiet most of the day, except for the noise that the child makes and possibly the parent that is home with them. But with all of the other people home, it starts to disrupt the quietness of the house, and the child might only be able to handle about 30 minutes of multiple people talking and watching TV or playing music, and just doing their usual everyday everyday things. But the child with autism is now getting overstimulated, trying to deal with all of the noises and with all of the auditory stimulation. We can use the same or similar type of strategies in this time of day, knowing what to expect and trying to prevent the situation from becoming overwhelming for the child by making some simple adjustments, hopefully. Some of the strategies might include things like dimming the lights in one area or one of the main rooms where everyone tends to spend time, encouraging the child with the sensory sensitivities to go to a a quiet space in that room or in the home, maybe 10 or so minutes, depending um, after maybe 10 or so minutes of everybody being home, depending on the situation, to let them have a chance to decompress and let their body recover from all of this sudden auditory stimulation that is starting in the evening. Maybe they just go and look at books or play with their trains or some activity that is calming for them, and then encourage them to come back after about 10 minutes or so when they are feeling ready and rejoin the family chaos. By taking a break before they become agitated or upset or anxious, they will hopefully be able to prevent those feelings from happening, and the child might be able to tolerate the evening family social time a little more easily. Maybe they don't have to leave the situation for a break. They might be able to stay with the family the whole time, but use other strategies like a weighted blanket or a pressure vest or some noise-canceling headphones to help keep their body feeling okay. Kids don't always know what they need, and they don't always know what is bothering them. This is where we come in to help the child and the family as a whole figure it out then they can be more aware of daily and other life situations 
and find ways to make those situations tolerable for their own child. If we can get some of these sensory things figured out, then we should start to see other things fall into place as well. Maybe you will see more eye contact happening naturally, or maybe the child will start making more sounds or saying words. These other things may or may not happen naturally or spontaneously, but if they don't, at least they might be in a place where you can really start to address them with the child and the family and start making some additional progress with their development. I know that I've mentioned eye contact a lot today, as this is a concern that parents and therapists often have with kids who have autism. I know a lot of people want to work on this with kids who have autism and want to teach them how to make eye contact for social and communication reasons. And I can understand this, but please keep in mind that for some kids, eye contact is so extremely difficult The reasons for this will vary from child to child, but I want you to think about it when working with families. If that is something that is very important for the family and they really want to work on this with their child, I would encourage them to do more and more vestibular and proprioceptive sensory processing activities with their child. Of course, only if these are activities that their child really enjoys. Sensory activities that are enjoyable for kids can do a lot for helping their body feel good and feel okay in the moment. And if their parent is involved in some way with the activity, they just might get to enjoy the benefits of a smile or a quick glance from their child and progress to even longer smiling and eye contact. I recently saw a post on Instagram from a parent who has a young child with autism And the post really reinforced this idea to me. They talked about going to the park and their experience with all of the sensory aspects of the outing, which resulted in some affectionate responses from the child. I won't get into the details because it's really not my story to tell, but you could get a sense of the satisfaction on both the child and the parent sides from taking the time to do something the child really loves to do and without any pressure ended the outing on a really very heartwarming experience. As therapists and parents of kids with autism, for the sake of the kids, please remember this. We all want what's best for the kids, but sometimes what's best for them is some free time doing what feels good. You might be surprised at the response you get. Speaking of Instagram, if you aren't following me there yet, please get on and do that. And also for those of you who are OTs and other therapists, don't forget that you can now use this show to get your continuing education or professional development units. It's so easy to do. You already listen, so just now all you have to do is get on my website at mymidwesttherapy.com, click buy it now under the episode And I will send you a short test. Once you send it back with the correct answers, you will get your certificate and everything that you need to get your credits. Please don't forget to check with your state and make sure that you don't need prior approval. Many states don't need it, but some do. So just check yours before you get on. If you aren't sure, you can also send me an email at allison at mymidwesttherapy.com. 
and ask me, um, and I should be able to let you know. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.